Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 459th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who expects that realization is the next evolution. We're talking with Dr. Jason Bradford about rural living as our future, Jason has been affiliated with Post Carbon Institute since 2004, first as a fellow and then as a board member. He graduated from UC Davis with a BS in biology before earning his doctorate from Washington University in St. Louis, where he also taught ecology. He worked for the Center for Conservation and Sustainable Development at the Missouri Botanical Garden was a visiting scholar at UC Davis and co-founded the Andes Biodiversity and Ecosystem Research Group. After all that, Jason shifted from academia to learn more about and practice sustainable agriculture. He completed training with Ecology Action in Willits, California and founded Brookside Farm School. Welcome to the show today, Jason. Are you ready to rock rural living? I sure am. I, uh, I was just doing that before, uh, before our call, actually. Excellent. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> so I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, sure. I guess, you know, what that bio doesn't say is sort of what I discovered along that path that, that shifted me from this sort of academic trajectory into really working on, on, on agriculture and food systems. And that was really my under, my evolving understanding of, of energy and how our society is organized around, around energy. And so that came about when I was really looking into climate change issues and uh, impacts on biodiversity through that group you talked about, uh, the Andes Biodiversity and Ecosystem Research Group. When that happened, I really took a turn and decided I was going to try to understand how to grow food and, and live, live a life that didn't demand as much uh, energy as, as sort of the, the modern world seems to suggest we need. Oh, yeah, which is quite a lot, especially when it comes to food production. Talk to me about yeah. that. Well, yeah, so the, the report goes over just basic information related to the, the evolution of the industrial food system. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about the wonders of it, 
and it is pretty amazing when you when you can get on a tractor and have 400 horsepower controlled by levers and, and it just the, the amount of people required to grow food nowadays in in places like the US is is really small relative to the overall population and any kind of historic norms and so the industrial agriculture system has essentially allowed most people to have jobs that really aren't related to their means of subsistence anymore, aside from having the money to buy things. Right. And, but, but the trade-off has been we use so much energy to do all this. And it's not just on the farm. Off the farm, even more energy is used when you talk about packaging and processing and refrigeration and transport and warehousing and retail and the refrigerator at home and cooking everything, you know. So when you do all this math, about 10 units of energy go into getting you one unit that you actually put in your mouth. And that's completely backwards. You know, no other, no other species would survive that way, but we just happen to hit the fossil fuel lottery and are drawing down those resources and thinking it's normal. So my jaw dropped just a moment ago when you said that. And right. I want to I want to repeat it and I need you to dig a little deeper into it. Sure. I think what I just heard you say was that it takes 10 units of energy to make one unit of food. Well, it, to get it to your to your mouth. So on the farm level, so this is interesting to break it up because on the farm level it's about 2 units of energy to get one unit of food harvested. And But then what ends up happening, of course, is most people aren't just pulling it off the farm and, and, and eating it. <laughs> the other eight out of ten happens after the farm up to your plate. And that's actually, uh, you know, fascinating to think about because we, you know, we sort of get into these habits where we, at least I do, you know, I'm, I'm guilty too. I like to eat the same stuff over and over again. I know there's a certain amount of variety, but no matter what time of year it is, I could, I could, if I really wanted to, have access to those strawberries or those fresh tomatoes. <laughs> you know, no matter where I am and the, you know, at what time of year it is, I can go buy that. And and so that's what the the, the industrial food system has done is it sort of has homogenized things and it's aseasonal in many respects and it's transporting stuff from all over the world. Uh, and putting it on display for us. And a lot of what that does is add, add tremendous energy to the production and distribution of it. When one of the interesting things, I was in a meeting recently, and this is something you hadn't mentioned, and we do a lot with urban agriculture here in Phoenix, and mm-hmm. a lot of the plants are watered with processed city water. And I was reminded or educated by, by someone at, from Arizona State University that there is a tremendous amount of energy that goes into getting that water from where it starts to drinkable in my faucet. So there, there's another place where energy goes. Yes, definitely. Moving water around is usually the highest energy cost and, and some, some of the highest budget items for any municipality is the is the getting water treated coming in and then also getting it treated going out is the the budget of if you look at the budget of cities mm-hmm. um, that is one of the biggest if not usually the biggest set of items wow. and the proportion of the electricity that is that is used in in um, in regions is often very high uh, high of water just water movement wow yeah. so in Looking at the information that you sent over and what you've already said, you've 
mentioned something called the report. Now, I'm assuming that's a capital T and a capital R, and I need a little bit more information about what the report is. I published a report through the Post Carbon Institute, which is based here in Corvallis, Oregon, and it was released a couple months ago. It's called The Future is Rural, Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification is the subtitle. And so that's what I'm referring to. And, and you can get that report at uh, postcarbon.org. Look under publications. Uh, there's hard copies available for order too, but you can get the PDF for free. Oh, nice. So you're serious about this. This is some deep work that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I've, I really am drawing kind of from a life, life history that's really unique. And so I had this academic biology pr- background, traveled around the world quite a bit doing research, taught ecology, like you said, and, and then I switched into doing this sort of small-scale agriculture with a direct relationship to, my, to the people I was producing food for, like a CSA program, using mostly hand tools. Then I actually uh, co-founded and worked for nine years for a company that was doing very large-scale organic conversion properties, integrating livestock, growing a big, a huge diversity of, of crops. And so, you know, I've worked with processing vegetables and all kinds of, you know, grains and other seed crops and legumes, um, cattle and sheep, permanent crops like grapes and hazelnuts. And so I've seen a, quite a spectrum. Um, and, you know, I had to do all the relationships with input service providers, you know, where do you get your fertilizer and mm-hmm. where do you buy your fuel and, and how do you lease equipment and, except, you know, how do you then sell, your, sell, your, sell what you're growing at the scale of thousands of acres. And, and so, you know, you combine that life history with my understanding of the energy situation and just being a human that lives in this society uh, of America but has traveled around the world and sees how, you know, most people live. <laughs> you know, you just start piecing that together. And I, I, I've brought to the report kind of the perspective of, okay, let me think, what do I think people need to know who, who probably aren't super familiar with all this, and how do I present it in a way that, you know, that, that they can relate to, but it's also you know, comprehensive enough so I think they've got enough background to start thinking about how to adapt and change as the world changes around them. Hence the report. Yeah. Awesome. So in the report, it's, uh, so I've got some notes from you, some questions from you. You argue that the trend will reverse from people moving into cities back out to r- rural areas because we've seen, you know, over the past hundred years, a mass yeah. migration to cities. Why is that going to change? Yeah, yeah so it, I think it just follows the, the energy availability to society. So what, I, what I'm basically saying is that, you know, we've, we've, we hit the fossil fuel lottery, and, and, and that, the, that era will start to wane probably in the next you know, decade or two, where the amount of fossil fuels we can extract will, will be less, become less and less every year. And they are so unique, their properties are so unique, they're so energy dense, they're so versatile, that they've allowed us to build these big cities, to have this global, globalized economy, to, to have it in our situation in the United States, where, and in many countries around the world now, where most people don't really have to work for food or energy. And that if you start to, though, pull fossil fuels out of the system, mm-hmm. then the more and more people are going to become jobless or, how, or be underemployed. Cities or regions will uh, not 
will be will not be able to afford the the upkeep of infrastructure like all the pumps that have oh, to yes. and sewer lines and mm-hmm. all this and you start to just get over time i'm not saying this happens you know you know from day 1 to day 2 this is sort of a a devolution in some respects which you can see examples of around the world already right so you know detroit detroit lost a major industry and it it, it went from 2 million people to about 600,000 people over some decades with infrastructure decaying in a, in a downward spiral. So I kind of, I, I sort of envision that as, as we have less energy available to society, that people will start having to fend for themselves more, mm-hmm. but more likely in, in the context of communities reorganizing around, around natural resource availability and producing more of what they, of what they need themselves. Perhaps call it the 100-year decline? Yeah, how long is it going to take? Uh, probably, you know, 100 years, sure. And, and like I said, it's probably going to be some places happen faster than others, depending on financial systems and power struggles and, and access to uh, more, more local or regional resources. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a messy to think about and, and hard, to, hard to project, yeah. predict. And you don't think the whole renewable energy movement will compensate for this eventual decline of fossil fuels? No, I don't. And it, so a lot of what I do up front is I explain that because I think that's a, that is a major assumption that people have. You know, a term I've used for this in other contexts is, is sort of this, well, they'll think of somethingism. Right. Or technologyism, yeah. maybe? Yeah, yeah. Or techno-triumphalism. You know, it's this notion that, and so it's really easy to kind of go through some math and, and, and get some basic energy literacy. But what's not easy is to cognitively follow through on the implications. So the report tries to do that. And one of the things it points out is, for example, you know, electricity is really a useful, amazing technology. And it's only about 25% of our energy use comes in the form of electricity. And most of the renewable energy technology people have in their, in their heads are really a we're replacing one type of electricity generation for the other. For another. Right. But it's really, it, it doesn't help us so much for transportation. We, we do think it does from the sense of, okay, well, I can see electric vehicles driving around, right? But, you know, try putting that on a, on a truck, uh, like a heavy, a heavy equipment truck. Right. And you're, you're, your batteries are going to have to be 40,000 pounds, and the truck can only carry 50,000 pounds. You know, these kind of things. So if you look at energy density of batteries, they don't help that much compared to the, the density of diesel. Same thing applies when you try to swap things out on tractors. I was, I've been running tractor the last few weeks, and, you know, it's amazing. I'll go all day, and my fuel tank will cut up by half. You know, I've, I've been on the tractor for, like, seven hours, and, oh, wow, I'm, I, I've only used half the tank. If, if I were to be dragging steel through rough, rough ground mm-hmm. um, with a battery pack, I would drain it very quickly. So... It's not the same thing as driving on a smooth road with good aerodynamics and only really putting your pedal to the metal once in a while. I've got the thing. I've got the, I've got, you know, I'm running at 70% capacity most of the time. So what I hear you saying is that our large equipment is always going to need some kind of gasoline or something that it can burn to make it move. Yeah, liquid fuels, liquid hydrocarbons. And so that's the key term, liquid hydrocarbons. So we, have, we use fossil hydrocarbons, we use gasoline, we use diesel. When airplanes, we use kerosene. 
These are all just different fractions of, hydro, of the hydrocarbons that get distilled from crude oil. And, and so you can look at a chart, and I got this in the report, that looks at energy density, and you'll see that, like, oh, well, olive oil is pretty close to diesel in terms of its density. And so this is where, you know, you can, you can imagine using biofuels, yep. um, but biofuels compete for other uses. You know, right. we need, we have food, we have, we have fiber. Now you're, you're putting fuel, you're putting, you know, get, get, like, grow the fuel for your farms. That's very different than what we have to do now. And it's also, you know, it takes an investment in, in energy to get that energy back. You've got to basically plant a, uh, a, a, you know, prepare a, a seed bed, plant your seeds, nurture that plant as it grows, and then you're going to harvest it. All this takes energy. Then you're going to process it. All that takes energy. Then you're going to get fuel back. And what you're counting on is that the fuel you get back is more than what you invested to go in. And with biofuels, you've got to be really good to get a positive return. It's not a slam dunk. Things have got to go right. Well, then, wow. What you're telling me then is that biofuels aren't, and I'm going to use a word here, regenerative, and let me explain it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Basically, it costs more energy to make the biofuels so you don't end up with a positive extra. You end up with less than what you put in. Well, no, I mean... If you do it right, the the math can add up so it adds more. Not for not for like corn ethanol. That's a joke. But if you you know if you grow an oil seed crop and you do a really good job of growing it and you're in the right soils, they're treated well, and you've got the right climate for it, and you're you you effectively grow and harvest it, then you can get an, a positive return. Hold on, you just told me everything has to be perfect. You got to do a good job. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> So if your yields are only like, you know, if you farm or, or garden, whatever, you know that sometimes like, my gosh, how come my, how come my broccoli just did lousy this year? Mm-hmm. You know, I, last year it was rocked. So this is the problem. You've, you've, instead of an oil well where it's like it's been down there for millions of years, it's already pretty much, you know, in really good condition. And we got to just, you know, put a, drill a hole and it's going to pop out of the earth and maybe, you know, nowadays, of course, we've got to go to some extreme lengths with pumping and, and injecting and, and off the ocean. But, you know, the energy is there, and the relative amount of energy we've got to put in to get oil out of the ground is tiny relative to what we have to do to, to get a return on biofuels. Right. And it's much more reliable to go get fossil fuels. Biofuels, you're relying on the right soil, the right weather, the right operators, you know, no pests or, you know, pest, pest control goes well. So I'm just saying the, the margin. So they talk, there's a term called energy return on investment. And for the fossil fuel industry, it was historically like a, a, a hundred units of energy return for every one we invested. Oh, now wow. it's down. Now it's down to like 10 to one. Okay. It's dropped as we've gotten down to the dregs, right? With mm-hmm. fracking and all this. But 10 to 1 is still way better than what you're going to get from any kind of biofuel scenario. If you do a 5 to 1 with biofuels, you're doing great. Wow. You worked for the Post Carbon Institute for some period of time, and you've been looking at this whole energy thing, and we got a big dose of it uh, you know, a couple of minutes ago. Does this breakdown that you're talking about 
does this is this something that'll happen over the course of a year or two, or is this a fifty or a hundred year process? Yeah, that is that is a great question, and I think it's really hard to say. I, I, I think a year is you know that's that's too sudden, likely unless you know we've got a solar flare that destroys our electric grid or whatever, or you know something something crazy. But I sort of see this as a as a really linked to also financial and social stability. So the financial system is what's used to make decisions about where an oil well is going to be drilled or where pipelines are going to be put in, right? And we rely then also on these financial metrics of, you know, the value of this currency versus that cur- currency and trade policies that, that, are, that are more or less, you know, open or restrictive to determine who gets access to these resources and and. And with the financial, with financial investment and stability, also then ultimately whether those resources even get uh, get accessed. So you know you could have war and economic crisis and a lot of lack of trust and confidence between nations that cause a quick downward spiral in our energy dis- extraction and delivery system. Mm-hmm. All right. This is sometimes referred to as the, what's called the Seneca Cliff, where there's a fairly rapid evolution of social complexity, you know, and global economic production. Or things, you know, governments step in, nationalize energy, energy extraction and distribution, create rationing systems so that we spread it out and, and make it more of a fair uh, distribution and aren't as worried about financial returns on investment, but are really more about let's just let's just get this stuff out into into society and do it safely and and let's have have more social stability. And then you could see that kind of thing where it would just we'd have a very slow slow decline in access to fossil energy. Now, from a climate perspective, you know the best thing maybe to do would be to have a fast a fast unwinding. Yeah. But from a social stability perspective, you want it to be slow. Right. So we're kind of, you know, I kind of feel like we're in a, between a rock and a hard place. Why is that? Well, from the, cause of, because basically, like, you know, if you look at the IPCC reports, they talk about, okay, if we want to keep climate in the safe, potentially safe zone, there's very little carbon budget left. And we should be, we should have, we should be having our fossil fuel consumption globally, you know, by like 2030 and be basically done with fossil fuel use by 2050. You know, that's extremely fast to make that kind of energy transition. Well, and it may very well happen because we're running low, right? Yeah. I think that, and that's the thing is what's, What's going to be, you know, I, we're, not, we're not making any preparations, though, right? We're not, we're not actually paying attention to the IPCC reports and doing anything to try to wean ourselves off this stuff. What is IPCC? Um, oh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. All right, so the, globe, the, the world body that's set up to sort of periodically summarize the state of climate change research and provide, provide that summary plus some... Um, you know, recommendations and uh, to policymakers and governments around the world. Wow. All right. So in this transition, the, you're calling it re-ruralization. Are there places that have already started this? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I wish there was a lot more research on this because, you know, I'm sure historically there's been tons of places where this has happened. Anytime you've had the, the collapse of 
complex civilizations, you've had people probably leaving leaving urban centers as as modest as they may have been, and and going back out to the countryside, and you've and you've had then kind of maybe these rural areas uh, not be taxed as much by the central power or worry about the getting their um, their sons uh, cons- uh, you know brought into the army or whatever. <laughs> so sometimes it's been considered a relief to have you know the center collapse. This is in the old days when you know farms weren't completely dependent upon synthetic fertilizers and, and diesel and global commodity markets for their goods. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, probably uh, even in recent times, you can probably listen to people who have fled war or fled uh, areas that have been in economic crisis. So Cuba, for example, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Soviet Union itself, when it, when it broke up and, you know, the Russian, the Russian population and some of their satellite, new satellite states those people would go out to their dachas and just try to survive. You know, there was not, it wasn't a good, a good way to get everybody what they needed anymore. You know, so there's probably lots of examples like that. Greece went through an economic crisis and, you know, people went out, fled Athens and went back to, to their, you know, olive, olive farm. Mm-hmm. Right? When Cuba did a great job of that transition, it, I don't know how easy or hard it was. I'm not making right. a judgment about that, but th- they have an amazing urban and rural growing yes. situation where they're producing a lot of food. Yes. You may have covered that in other, sh- other shows. I haven't yet, but that would be a good thing. If you got any connections for me, I'll take them. Are you familiar with uh, David Holmgren and his ideas of uh, retro suburbia? Uh, I absolutely don't know David Holmgren. He was basically the co-author of Permaculture. Yeah. I think, you know, some of that kind of literature too is interesting because he's He's trying to take permaculture and say, okay, we're going to go through this energy descent, is what he calls it. Mm-hmm. And permaculture has sort of anticipated this for, you know, decades. And here's what you might do to retro, retrofit suburbia. So he's got a, a really big new book out that, that has a lot of, of course, it's a permaculture book, so it's full of diagrams and oh, yes. beautiful pictures. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love yeah. it. So there's really... From what I hear you saying, there's not really anything that we need to panic about today, but we need to be more cognizant of this. It doesn't make, it, it's not useful to panic. That's absolutely right. But it's nice to have a sense of urgency so you actually do change behavior, right? So how do you uh, straddle that? Okay, don't panic. You don't want a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline so that you can't sleep and you can't function because you're not in mortal peril right now. But gosh darn it, you know, you and your community could be if we have this unraveling that occurs and there's a lot of people that are jobless and they can't get access to food and the government's dysfunctional. So I think there are many skills that people can develop now while there's time, while they have the luxury of, of stability, the courses they can take, practices they can, they can begin. And, and so I, that's a lot of what I go through in the, in the report also is sort of thinking about sort of strategy and tactics, but how you would get where you live more ready for this. And I go over sort of the resilience science and and what it might teach us about what to do in this moment. So what does that mean, resilience science? Yeah, so resilience science and resilience thinking, it's a branch, uh, you know, of ecology that looks at what it takes for what happens in natural systems when they go through cycles of sort of growth and an exploitation of resources, and they develop to a point of maturity, 
And then usually what happens is they get to this point where they, be, they, start to, they start to become fragile. So they go from vigorous, young, growing things, a community, to a forest that is now old and the trees are toppling over and it's full of disease and, you know, the next windstorm may destroy it. And then what you get, you get this release of, of nutrients and now this open space. It's not occupied by this old forest. And so they, they brought, they call that the adaptive cycle. And so depending on where you are in that adapt, adaptive cycle, you can apply it to social systems. There are things that are maybe, you know, useful to think about, to, be a, to think ahead and prepare. And so what I basically argue in this is that we as a civilization are at kind of the, the late, what they would call the late conservation phase of the adaptive, adaptive cycle and are about to go through a release and that release or breakdown phase requires that we quickly reorganize to live in a different mode that is, that is more suited to this lower energy situation. That's sort of the, the broad you know, structure or framework of what we're asked to do now. It's think ahead for when this, when this breakdown phase happens. What would you like to have had ready to go, right? Right. Before it happens, what, kind of, what can you put in place now so that you can more quickly reorganize and, and better feed and, and shelter and, and have good, stable social relationships uh, in, in that process. Every single thing that I do, the podcast, my online courses, yeah. the local education that I do, we do something here in Phoenix called the Great American Seed Up, where we're basically seeding families with enough seeds for them for their life. Yeah. And everything that I do is done because of what you just said. Oh, um, that's cool. I'm really, that's really excited cool, right? to go read the report because so much of what you're talking about is, it's like the water that I s swim in, but I know it's there every day. It's like, that's the what we need to address. Yeah, and it, it's helpful to put it, I think what helped me, so, you know, of course, when you write these things, you're both learning and you're, you're processing it yourself, right? Yeah. So it helped me because you can get really frustrated, right? You're an activist. You're, you, you see these connections and you're worried and people are living in the moment and they're distracted. You know, what, when you step back and you look at it from this perspective of the resilience science, you go, okay, this is kind of the way these systems are. They get rigid. They lack the ability to change. And so it's very hard to talk to the current system and say, oh, no, you have to change. The system is locked in. It's not going to change until it breaks, unfortunately. It's very hard to reform it, right? How many people just beat their head against the wall trying to reform? <laughs> right. And it's not, it doesn't want to reform. And that's what's really sad, of course. It's, it's sad. But when you get over that and you kind of intellectually sort of see through this lens of resilience science, that's what really helped me. I kind of let go of trying to force, like, listen to me, you must reform. <laughs> um, right. And I think more like, okay, how can I be, how can I, how, what kind of tactics do I need? to be ready that so when there is a, a crisis and reform is so obviously necessary mm -hmm. that at least someone has thought ahead with has a plan. Yeah. When everything I, I talk about, I've talked about this for years, everything that I do, I kind of, you know, imagine you're holding your hand out and urban agriculture and growing our own food is sitting in a pile on your hand. And what I do is I, I, I show that to people and I say, and you can do this. It's really simple. So rather than trying to get them enrolled in this, you know, this heavy conversation, I just right. point it, you know what? You can grow your own food and it tastes so much better and you right. know where it comes from. So right. 
that's the way I've chosen to address it. Yeah, sure. They, they don't have to understand the big picture necessarily, but you want to try to nudge people to things that will pre-adapt them for a future and make them healthier today. Right. And as I've often said, it's the business that I have and the, the data that I share is, is good now. And when yeah. the economy goes down, it's great. I saw that in 2007, 8, 9, and 10, how right. much more interest there was. People were engaged and playing, playing out more. So right. got to love that. You know, I, I saw one thing in what you were saying a little while ago, and it, it kind of it put this question in my head. And I know this isn't true, but I think a lot of people think this way. And the, the thing is, but humans have figured out a way to get outside of natural systems. I mean, we're better than natural systems. We can figure out how to do them better. Right. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that, that is sort of the, gosh, that is a, I think, a normal hubris that we, or a lot of us are likely to have. I certainly have had it in the past because things are almost magical right now. You know, the, the technology we have is so advanced. And it, it, I sort of think of it like from my own perspective, like I'm specialized in certain ways. I'm kind of a generalist, but there are certain things I'm specialized in that I know so much about that it's almost impossible for me to talk to or explain these particular things to anybody else except for another handful of people. And, you know, so what's happened is that we're just bedazzled. Now, there's, there's somebody out there that knows this much, and we, we just sort of assume that somebody will figure something out then we'll be innovative enough. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that the particular stuff that, that people think about, you know, the technologies, they're so energy dependent. They, it's like a house of cards that once you, once you see things through this energy lens and you remove the energy blindness from you, you realize like, oh, you know, so like a, the, one of my uh, pet peeves right now is like the internet of things and like 5G wireless technology. Mm-hmm. That is so energy demanding. The simple models of like how much more electricity we're going to need if every single gadget is suddenly linked to the internet and how 5G... 5G wireless technology is so inefficient in terms of traveling through space. You know, it carries more information, but it means you've got to put up a relay station, you know, every few hundred feet. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's just nuts. So, you know, there's all this, this glorification of the technology. And if you think that we have an infinite supply of energy and we're going to be mining asteroids and, you know, creating some Dyson sphere civilization... You know, maybe, but I really kind of doubt that. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad, but I understand it. I grew up watching Star Trek, and I love sci-fi. You know, I, I grew up with these computers. It just kept getting better and better. But once I had an energy lens, you know, that all, I, I now suddenly became aware of how fragile that all is and how, how what I, you know what I want, though? Like, people are ingenious. Have you traveled like to other countries where people oh, yes. are pretty poor? Oh yes. You know, you're like, well, that's ingenious, but they're doing something ingenious that isn't isn't some techno glory. It's simple. It's, they're really simple. They're clever, yeah. and often it's biologically based. You know. Imagine that. Yeah, and that's the kind of ingenuity. Have you ever read that book, uh, Farmers of Forty Centuries by no. King? He goes to Japan and China in early 20th century like 1906 or whatever. And his descriptions of how they lived, 
is absolutely stunning. And you will, you're just so impressed with the ingenuity. And it was basically a farmers of 40 centuries. Like, he came from the U.S. where we were destroying our soils. We were hor- the U.S. farmers have been horrible for generation after generation. We were never good. We, we just go to new, we have all this land, and we just keep moving to, to new land and colonizing it and, and really destroying it. We got rescued by fossil fuels to make all these synthetic fertilizers. But this is really before, you know, all that was available. He says, oh, my gosh, he's a soil scientist. I got to go where they figured this out and see if I can bring that back and change policy in the U.S. so that we don't starve ourselves and destroy our soil. It's amazing. Wow. It's amazing what they did and how good they were, you know. And, and so some of those cultures are still around. And those people, some of those ways of life are still there. Mm-hmm. I think we can learn a lot from them. Oh, yes. So what can people do to prepare for this future that you envision? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of what I, I think about is I don't really, I'm not, I'm not one to prescribe to people like, oh, you know, here's the list. It's more become energy literate, understand your surroundings, you know, understand where you live and what its capabilities are, its history, Find like-minded people that you can collaborate with to, and start coming up with some kind of strategy and tactics that make sense in your area. And what, you, what role you take is going to be very personal based upon your talents, your interests, your connections, you know, your stage in life. And so that, you know, some of it could be the, the personal of, yeah, learn how, to, learn how to put in a garden. But a lot of it might be related more to how do you get policy in your town ready? Or, you know, how do you get local farmers to, to make a shift, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you started the Brookside Farm School. Tell me about it. Oh, that was interesting. I just happened to be walking my kids. I lived, a, I lived just a couple blocks from the elementary school that my kids were going to in, in Willits, California. And there was this, like, one acre in, in the back where there were some temporary buildings were put up. And so the yard duties couldn't really see kids back behind those. Mm-hmm. So they said, you can't go, you can't go over there to the West. And, and I learned, and I learned this, you know, and then I talked to the principal Chuck and I said, you want me to put in a school farm here? And he said, yeah, that would be really interesting. And so, you know, I had to go by the school board and I had to, um, I had to get approval and I had to raise some money and get a local nonprofit to sponsor it. But I had, I was training with, uh, John Jevons and his group, uh, oh, yes. Ecology Action mm-hmm. We've up had in him Willis. On the show. Yeah. And so I, I, I was thinking, okay, well, I'll just start applying this, you know, here. And so I ran that for a few years and, and transitioned out and, and, brought someone else on who was really good and, and honestly more experienced and better at it than I am. And then moved, moved to Corvallis. But it was a great experience. You know, there's a lot that you, uh, when you really start having to do it for real, you get humbled quickly. <laughs> oh, yeah. You mentioned John Jevons. We actually had him on the podcast for episode 423 and 424. It was so cool. I was a little bit starstruck because I've known of him for decades. And so, you know, when I had him on, I just started recording and he just wanted to talk. So I just let him talk and talk and talk. So we actually got two episodes, episodes 423 and 424. Okay. I'm, I'm just sort of, uh, 
struck by the number of episodes you've had. Uh-huh. What, are, what are we up to now? You're probably going to be pretty close to 470. Okay. So it wasn't too long ago you had them on. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, about six months ago. We do, uh-huh. I guess we're doing about 104 episodes a year right now. So Very impressive. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, very interesting. There was an organization I was part of where I failed, I think, in really understanding that not everyone was on the same page. Not everyone had the same goals. We weren't really a cohesive team. Mm. And I made assumptions about it that then led to, I think, you know, did not going so well. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to give any details about beyond that, but I think that that really struck me as like looking back, you know, why things, some of the reasons, not all, but some of the reasons why things didn't, didn't work out so well. So that, that was definitely a, you know, maturing experience. Mm-hmm. What was your lesson from that? I think it's really important to make sure that, that people uh, that you're working with understand each other, like working very hard at communication. And if, if you don't, you know, something's got to give, you know, if people aren't willing to go along with what the group, you know, vision, goals, values, direction are, then, you know, I think the team has to lose people and has to find the right mix. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Big time. Well, in my lesson, cause I had a, something similar happen. Uh, I started a nonprofit and it didn't work out so well. And one of the one of my learnings and one of my solutions was I went off on my own and I pretty much do entrepreneurial stuff. I like to make sure that I have the control direction of the projects that I'm working on and the ones that I'm starting that I don't have control direction. I have to put them out there and just let them go. Yeah. So you got to decide like, okay, well, I'm just going to leave. Yeah. If I don't have control of this, I also then have to not be, you know, tied to it and see yeah, totally. So what do you consider your biggest success? I guess one of the things that it, it, it's that is interesting is this group we talked about, the Andes Biodiversity Ecosystem Research Group. I, I helped found that, and I was pretty young at the time. I think that is still going, and it's been very, very productive and as an academic kind of research enterprise. I didn't even stick around for more than three years, but I got a really good team together, mm-hmm. and I think... I had this youthful energy and clearly said, here's what I want, here's, here's what I, you know, and let people talk, but uh, we got to a shared vision and I helped guide that. And so I think that's, that's been a great project that I, I kind of wish I could still be a part of, but my life took a different turn. I went into farming. <laughs> nice. But I think, you know, what's interesting is I look back on why that worked and then why other things haven't. And I think a lot of it has to come, come down to, do you get the right people together, pulling together? Yeah. And what drives you? Well, hunger, thirst, fatigue are all very important, but that's not very visionary or interesting. So I think, you know, gosh, I live in a really beautiful place and, and I've been around the world and there have been so many moments where I've just been awestruck by how beautiful something is or I'm just, I'm just astounded by, by natural beauty and have always really wanted to understand it, appreciate it, protect it. And so I think, you know, I've had a lot of moments in life like that, and I probably do many times. I'm not a religious person, but I 
think it's, it's akin to how many people maybe feel like these religious experiences. Mm-hmm. I can just stand and look at the sky and just be astonished sometimes, or the, or, uh, the stars, you yeah. know, or a flower opening up. So I think that's what I think about a lot, is when I think about the state of the world right now and what really, really scares me, I'm also motivated to try to surround myself with as much of that beauty as I can and realize that, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to protect it. I'd like to keep the evolution of life going, <laughs> you know, in its diversity and wonder. Wow, cool. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, I am reading a book now, so that's an easy one. It's called Any Way You Slice It by Stan Cox. And uh, the picture has a piece of pie on it, but the topic is not a topic that people like to hear much about, but I think it's a crucial one. It's, called, it's about rationing and the history of rationing and where it's, where it's worked and where it's not worked and why. And I think that's something we're going to, if you, you know, getting back to what we talked about, about this energy descent scenario. And I think that we are going to have to face the, con- you know, the, the prospect of rationing of, of key, you know, goods and services. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, and I've said this many times, one of the things that I believe is that this whole notion of lack lives only one place on the planet. And that's between our ears, because when I look at the amount of peaches that I'm harvesting this week off of one tree, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. So I've always liked the idea of planting our gardens and having that abundance show up. And that's, right. that's really the drive behind me getting everybody growing their own food, because that's part of the solution. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. If we can, if we can disperse the... If we can take the creative energy of people and disperse that, you know, that, that love for what they're doing and guide it towards, you know, food production, that's going to take a lot of pressure off of all these resources that I'm so concerned about and which we're going after in really, you know, dangerous, destructive ways that's undermining the viability of ecosystems all around the planet. That's, that's kind of why I made that switch, you know, into looking at, at food is a lot, of the, a lot of the environmental problems we have are, are by this food system that's pretty nutty. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the case? So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? It's interesting because, you know, a lot of times, I, I, oh, well, you should learn to do this. Or, I, I don't, it, it's not like a technical thing I want to, I, I think about this. It's, it's this relating to other people well. It's learning how to deal with difficult people. And it might include working with them or it might include saying, you know, I really can't, I really can't work with you, you know, know, knowing when to make that kind of call. But, but really getting, you know, how do you get groups of like-minded people to work together for a shared purpose? Developing those kind of skills, practicing that, I think is really critical and is going to be more and more critical going forward. You know, having the ability to have, you know, generate trust among people that have this shared vision, I think is really important and get them to work together and stay together. Wow, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jason. It's been great, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's been great having you. I've learned a lot, and this is the level of conversation. When I was getting my master's degree at ASU about 15 years ago, this was the level of conversation that I loved. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so thank you for that. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? www.postcarbon.org. 
and you know, if you have, there's it's a contact form, and uh, they forward everything to me, no problem. Perfect. And the report, remind everybody where they can find this report that we're going to want to go. Yeah, the same URL, postcarbon.org, and you'll see at the top, you know, publications. So that it's under, uh, you know, books and reports. It's, it's right there, free to download as a PDF. And you just got to, you know, sign, sign a, you know, sign a little form and then it will send a link to you for the PDF download. It's quite large. It's about a 100-page report. So if people really prefer, they can, uh, they can order it also as a hard copy. Perfect. And what is the report called? The Future is Rural Food System Adaptations to the Great Simplification. Awesome. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash the report. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.